This is the Affirm America podcast, where we stand up and speak out affirming American excellence. Coming to you deep in the heart of the Midwest, located in an undisclosed log cabin on the outskirts of town, your host, Marquis Vandemark. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Affirm America podcast. I am your host, Marquis Vandemark. It's a beautiful day in the Midwest today. The trees are turning colors. I'm looking out my window right now, there's orange and red and green. It's crisp, it's cool, and it's most definitely the fall season. This is my favorite time of the year. I really like the fall. Football season, weather's changing. It's a great place to be alive in the greatest nation on God's green earth, the American excellence that we affirm here at the Affirm America podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. I've got a very good show for you, and uh, we're very happy that you can be here with us today. Lots of things happening in the political world. Today we have a good story we want to share with you, something you may not be aware of, maybe you have, but we want to dig a little deeper in what's happening in Nigeria with uh, terrorism, terrorism for that affects the uh, Christian population and the uh, extreme Muslim extremists that are slaughtering Christians in that country. My guest today is a reporter reporting for the Epoch Times. We want to bring him on today and share with you a little bit about what's going on in Nigeria. Now you might ask, why Nigeria? What's that got to do with with us here living in America? Well, as we explore this story, I think you'll see why it's important that we as Americans are aware of what's going on around the world. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. His name is Doug Burton. Doug is an award-winning reporter living near Washington, D.C. He is an assignment editor for the African-based reporters contributing to the Epoch Times. Doug put in years as an editor of magazines published by the Washington Times Corporation before heading to the Middle East as a special hire for the U.S. Department of State during the U.S. occupation of Iraq. Today, he is respected as an investigative reporter on terrorism in Nigeria, the Iraq War, and on Central Asia. His reportage has appeared in the Epoch Times, U.S. News and World Report, the Colorado Springs Gazette, the Washington Times, Washington Examiner, and Washington Free Beacon. Currently is reporting on terrorism in Nigeria for the Epoch Times and America's complex stew of political controversies for Chronicles a magazine of American culture published by the Charlemagne Institute. Recently, he was featured in a documentary by Laura Logan, No Agenda. Burton and four reporters he supervises were featured recently in the Fox Nation documentary exploring the Nigerian conflict. So Doug Burton uh, joins us today. Hey, Doug, how's it going? Hey, uh, Marky, it's my honor to be on the podcast, and uh, I... I, I'm really glad you're doing this. Well, hey, thank you for joining us. Um, when I watched uh, Laura Logan's 
documentary on Fox Nation, No Agenda. I hope everybody can uh, go check that out if you're not a member of Fox Nation. It's very inexpensive, and there's a lot of content if you like Fox News television programming. Fox Nation has a lot of content you can't get on on the Fox News channel. And this is one documentary that I hadn't heard about. And when I did hear about it, I, I felt I really have to do a, uh, an episode on what's happening in Nigeria. So tell us a little bit, Doug, um, how did you get involved? What, um, what inspired you to report about the atrocities that's happening in Nigeria? Uh, thank you, Marky. Well, you know, I I started my retirement years or semi-retirement years a few years ago in 2015. I started to do freelance reporting for the Washington Times by uh, doing long-distance uh, interviews with people in Iraq and, and Syria, mainly Iraq, and, and doing stories about the the battles to recover Mosul. And uh, I taught myself how to do investigative reporting which I had not done uh, much of as an editor at Washington Times. And so, uh, but I, I found that I could get a lot of stories published. Then I had a health crisis in 2017. I almost uh, passed away oh, wow. while I was, yeah, I was in the hospital for four weeks, actually. And at one point in my uh, convalescence, uh, the thought occurred to me, you know, I might not get out of here. But if I do, I want to do something significant with my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, sort of coincidentally, uh, just a few months later, I went to a press conference downtown in Washington, and uh, I, I heard a speaker from the International Committee of Nigeria tell about this terrible loss of life in West Africa, especially in Nigeria, where there's a, uh, you know, there's a, a mass, uh, a mass killing. Of, of defenseless farmers in the rural areas of Nigeria by uh, Islamic jihadists. And I didn't know much about it, but I was shocked by the, the scale of it and the, the gravity. And so I got uh, to, you know, to learn more about it. And then I realized, well, I could do the same kind of reporting I've been doing to Iraq and I could do it in Nigeria because everyone in Nigeria speaks English, which is not the case in the Middle East. Hmm. And uh, I started to develop my contacts, and I found that, yes, uh, I can get primary sources, people who are victims, uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses to terrorist attacks through my cell phone. And then I started to realize, well, Nigeria is not really 5,000 miles away. It's only as far away as your cell phone. Isn't that true? That's absolutely yeah. true today. Yeah. So uh, that's how it got started. I I was I was shocked by the the you know the gravity uh, the horror of the killings you know the it's not a two-sided conflict it's largely it's it's a complex conflict because there's an ISIS insurgency and there are Al Qaeda groups but they also have uh, bandit gangs that are Islamist in orientation. And uh, though they're not organized officially as an insurgency, they do the same work. They do the same thing that the ISIS insurgency does. They subjugate people of other religious faiths, not only Christians, but they subjugate Muslims who don't have the right kind of Islam, and they subjugate people of other uh, minority religions. Mm. 
So I thought, well, this is something that I'm, I feel called to be, be a part of. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, I was uh, really shocked when I watched the documentary that uh, you did with Laura Logan. And um, I mean, I heard, you know, you hear little bits and pieces, but uh, until you really, you know, see it with the video footage that she presented in her documentary and, and your explanation really opened my eyes to what was going on there. I had no idea. Tell, let's see if we can break this down, because I know when I first heard it, it was because it was new. You know, I hadn't heard so much about it. I had to watch, you know, the document, documentary a couple, two or three times just to, you know, kind of put the pieces together. So let's see if we can kind of break it down a little bit. I know that we talked a little bit that uh, mostly this is happening in the northern part of Nigeria. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And then the southern part is more Christian, right? Christian right. Uh, population. Yes. Majority Christian, yep. And uh, so these are uh, part of uh, Boko Haram, right? Boko Haram is, uh, I don't know what language it's derived from, but uh, it's an it's a Islamic state-linked insurgency. And the, the word means... Western learning is forbidden. Boko means is corresponds to book, and haram means blasphemous. Or haram means it's against God's teaching. So, what it means is Western learning is forbidden. Now, uh, that insurgency has been erupted as a as an effort to topple the government in 2014. The group has been active uh, preaching a jihadist form of Islam for close to 20 years. Uh, so that is one of the insurgent groups. There are other Al-Qaeda groups uh, in operating in northern Nigeria. So, yeah, it's a very, it's a complex situation. And that was part of the challenge. Yeah. One thing I think maybe a lot of people might remember was the, uh, the Chibok girls that uh, right, were under yeah. the Obama administration when, uh, you know, Michelle Obama held up that placard that said, you know, save our girls, I think, something of that nature. Bring back our girls. Bring back our that, girls, yeah, that's, that's what the it mantra. was. Bring back our girls, and uh, she popularized it. And it seemed that Michelle and Barack Obama were on board to help solve a problem. It became a great cause in 2014. Unfortunately, although within a few months, most of the Chibok girls who were, they were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Northeast Nigeria in 2014, they were they were ransomed out to the government. But about a hundred of these girls remain in captivity. Some have been forced into marriages uh, to Boko Haram soldiers, mm -hmm. and we don't know where they are now. Mm -hmm. We'd uh, you'd mentioned that there is a tremendous amount of kidnapping going on up in the northern part, especially uh, bankrupting some of the Christian churches up there. T talk a little bit about that. Uh, Doug, I think that's well, yeah. uh, something that was pretty shocking to me, too, in the cost and what it's done. Yeah, kidnapping for ransom is the most widespread crime in Nigeria, and it is, uh, it, it's happening at a biblical scale, but it's been happening for a couple of decades. When I discovered the kidnapping problem, I immediately saw a parallel between ISIS and Iraq, because kidnapping for ransom was the chief revenue producer for the Islamic State of uh, Levant, you know, of Iraq and Syria. Mm. Of course, the the ISIS insurgency began in 2012 
in northern Syria. And it began as a criminal group that was doing kidnap for ransom, extortion, and many other kinds of crime. And I came to realize that all the Islamist insurgencies, all the al-Qaeda groups also, they begin as criminal organizations because through crime they gain revenue. They have really no other way of uh, gaining large sums of money. Mm. Through kidnapping for ransom, these insurgent groups all over the Middle East and, and Africa they gain the, the revenue they need to buy more sophisticated weapons, uh, hire more soldiers, get vehicles, and so forth. And then it leads to acquiring other kinds of, of uh, businesses or investments that produce revenue. They can uh, get into uh, you know, agriculture, uh, stealing or trading oil, etc. So I saw the parallel between Boko Haram and ISIS. And of course, I, Boko Haram claims claimed to be a part of ISIS, but ISIS rejected it and chose another group to uh, give its anointing. Mm. But the, uh, the kidnapping for ransom, it's, it's happening all over Nigeria. It's especially a tool for subjugating Christians in the so-called middle belt of Nigeria. Mm. And it's, uh, it's expensive for these people that are mostly farmers and yeah. you know, don't make a lot of income. They, it's, it can be as much as what, $10,000 per person that they, that they try to extort. Is that? Uh... Exactly. Uh, well, that's actually the median. Uh, it's according to the international committee on Nigeria, the executive director, Kyle apps studied the uh, kidnapping phenomenon for years. They, they published a wonderful study last year called silent slaughter in which they've compiled their, their data book that they've worked on for years and they estimate that the average, say, the median ransom uh, in Nigeria is about $10,000. But some of these ransoms can be $100,000 or $200,000 for individuals who have great prominence in society. You know, mm-hmm. high, for example, uh, high-level clergymen, uh, politicians, bankers, uh, you know, media celebrities, so sure, forth. Sure, sure. Uh, but and then for the the working-class citizens, the small farmers, folks like that. They sometimes they get kidnapped and uh, their families can't produce any revenue, so they think those people get killed. But they don't just don't mm. come back. Oh, that's horrible. The, uh, the yeah, it's tragic. And then, and some of the the smaller ransoms can be thousand dollars, you know, two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. The uh, for a lot of those farmers, those those uh, Nigerians and Christians and. They they make about what twenty five hundred dollars a year. That's their that's their total oh, less income. Than, less than less 25. than that. Oh, less than that. Much less than that. The, about half of the people. This has been reported in many stories. Uh, Nigeria is a very large country. It's the the most populous country in Africa. It's going to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It already is one of the wealthiest, but it's going to be much wealthier. Two hundred eighteen million people, right? Something like that. Exactly. And about half of them are living in. Uh, in a state of poverty, it's hard for us to relate to. That we, it's hard to believe that they are able to survive on so little money. But it's a, and you know, it's an agricultural country. It's got fantastic farmland, so many of the small farmers can get by on less than a thousand dollars a year because mm. they they grow a lot of their own food. They get food cheaply. So you don't have starvation in Nigeria like we've we've seen mass starvation. Mm. Terrible, uh, you know, terrible uh, famines in Ethiopia, not in sure. Nigeria, but there is privation. 
So, yeah, people get by on very little. And then on the, the wealthier half of the country, uh, they typically live in the big cities in the south or in the capital of Abuja, which is central Nigeria. And there are many wealthy people. There are quite a few billionaires in Nigeria. The, the wealthy class lives in these big cities. Abuja has a building boom right now. They live in skyscrapers. They have all modern conveniences. They have a thriving commercial culture. Very sophisticated economy in many ways. A lot, so of, their it, chi- lot of their children probably go to the uh, U.S. schools, right? They probably have interests absolutely. here in the uh, in the U.S. Oh, the Nigerians value education uh, very, very highly, and U.S. universities are full of Nigerians. In fact, there's I think there's close to two hundred thousand Nigerians just in the Houston, Texas area. Yeah, wow. they uh, the Nigerians typically the immigrants to this country are better educated and wealthier than the resident Americans. There you go. Interesting. Now, um, let's let's uh, give people a little idea of what's going on. So there have been, what, 380 towns that were taken over by the militants in the north? 380 towns, right, that were, were taken over by these militants. And what, what do they do exactly? How, what's their, their MO for... Um, yeah, for creating uh, terror. Yeah, according to Christians World Solidarity, and also by the International Christian Concerns, over the last twenty years, but especially in in, a, in an accelerated uh, way in the last four years, uh, groups of hurting people who are typically associated with one ethnicity. It's called the Fulani tribe. That's F-U-L-A-N-I. The Fulani tribe is one of the biggest ethnicities. In West Africa, there are up to 35 million people who are part of it, and there are about six to seven million Fulani people in Nigeria. They are a people well-known herding cattle over long distances. They're they're semi-nomadic. Not all of the Fulani people are are uh, cattle herders, but there's a significant number of them. And in, in the in Nigeria, there has been a tradition of the herding peoples moving their cattle from the northern states down to the middle belt and even toward the southern states according to the season, according to rainfall. Mm. Well, with, the population has soared in the last 20 years. And many, and uh, so the arable land increasingly has been farmed. So the herding peoples are running into farmland that, that blocks their grazing routes. So they have get, they've gotten into conflict with the, the farmers, and they've insisted that they have a right uh, move their cattle over the farmlands, over the, the crops, and they consume, they allow their cattle to consume the crops, which bankrupts the, the farmers. So the problem is that uh, many Bulani people are proud of their devout Islamic faith, and many of them have become rad- radicalized. So they are, so they're seeking to, the militants are seeking to move the farmers out of the area. And they, the organized militants are armed with uh, automatic rifles. They're armed with uh, AK-47 rifles, whereas gun control has prevented the farmers from purchasing weapons. Gun control is strictly enforced across the country. However, it's not enforced against the herders, the Fulani. And the only explanation we have is that the government is complicit with these attacks. The president of Nigeria is a Fulani man. He's one of the leading Buhari. members of the tribe. Yes, his name is Buhari, Muhammadu Buhari. The 
the fed the police force is nationalized it, they have a federal system but there are no local police all the all the police are paid by the the national government and the military is involved doing police work also they, there's a big budget for military and neither the military or the police have uh, been known to arrest the Fulani herders who do these attacks. So it's uh, it's hard to believe, but that for the last uh, maybe last 10 years, groups of militants have been uh, moving in groups. They were moving groups of 12, 20, 30, or sometimes 300 people. More recently, there have been attacks of 300 armed men moving through a village, burning all the houses, slaughtering people who can't get away, killing people in their houses. So, uh, and this has resulted in the murder of about 60,000 people uh, over this 20-year period. By some estimates, as we have reported, according mm-hmm. to some clergymen, mm-hmm. the number of people killed by these attacks is actually close to 500,000. Because wow. many of the many of the, the assassinations or the murders are not even reported. They're not reported in the media, even in Nigeria. So they're certainly not being reported in the West. Yeah, I, uh, the, I think the number I saw on the uh, documentary was 43,000 Christians were killed in a 12-year period, which is okay. uh, astonishing. That's, uh, I mean, that's unbelievable what's going on. So what? Uh, let's, let's kind of um, take this, this time here to uh, listen to somebody that's on the ground that's experiencing what's going on here to give, a, give uh, my audience a little flavor of what they're going through. I've got a little three-minute clip here from Laura Logan documentary. From um, this is a, a, a citizen uh, journalist. Uh, no, he's a professional. This man, his name is Masara Kim. He's a professional uh, reporter and videographer, and he has a website, and he has a media called MK Reporters, which is the his initials. He's Masara Kim, mm-hmm. and he's he's a, a recognized journalist throughout Nigeria. He's 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 been featured in uh, television talk shows uh, because he does superb uh, videography and reporting. Even though he has only he lost his one of his arms as a child through a childhood accident, he's only got one arm, uh, but he does fantastic work. And so, because the uh, the mainstream media doesn't pick it up they don't they're not reporting on what's going on then you've uh, identified some uh, citizen journalists right that are reporting in some of their towns trying to get the yes. message out to the public yes. of what's going on and so it's uh, a lot of people aren't aware of it because because the uh, the message just isn't being received because the yes. uh, media is not reporting it so Doug and um, some of his contacts these are just uh, citizens that are reporting on what's happening in their towns, really yes. trying to expose the truth because the media is just not not reporting it. The president um, Buhari is um, in support of the uh, uh, Fulani uh, insurgency and everything that's going on. So it's it's uh, there's a lot of politics, but also uh, the media is complicit in in not bringing the truth out. So um, let's uh, let's just listen to this um, three minutes. It'll give uh, our audience a chance to get a feel for what's what's really going on down in. Kidnapping is a way to pay for a war against people with no defense and no arms. Here, a glimpse of the terror that's come to the door of Christians in the north. Boko Haram captured in this video 
moments after they'd attacked a Christian village in 2019. Imagine what it's like when it's you they come for, swarming over homes and villages with murder in their hearts and no mercy in their souls. What's it like to go into one of these villages or to the scene of one of these massacres the way you do? The first thing actually you will be confronted with um, driving into um, any of these communities is a big cloud of horror. It's usually heartbreaking, really, to see the faces of, of these people in despair, to see the faces of, of children um, whose parents have been killed, the faces of women whose husbands have been killed, um, the faces actually of parents whose, whose children have been killed, and the faces actually of families whose only sources of wealth, um, only possessions, crops, properties have been destroyed um, in clear acts of economic sabotage. Masara Kim is the eyes and ears of a world that doesn't care from his village in northern Nigeria. And he told us in another life and another time, he would have liked to be an astronaut. But the life of a poor Christian boy in a land where the earth around you is being cleansed of people like you is grounded in another reality, documenting as a journalist what he and others know is genocide. A lot of times when I go to these villages, seeing burnt houses um, and all the destruction, I usually get a headache, actually. Um, I get depressed most of the time. You could be killed at any time. Well, of course, I'm overqualified to die at 32. The children that have been killed, the women, pregnant women that have been slaughtered, and their, their bellies slit open, and the, the babies also butchered in their bellies. Who did, they, who did they speak against? What truth did they reveal? Who did they incite? Kim carries their stories as a shield warrior and wordsmith in a war of ideas where the ideology of extremists would be written out of the headlines and the history books were it not for people like him here in the killing fields of christians he's witnessed the rising body count in one village after another that binds the islamic terrorists of boko haram to other muslim jihadists like the nomadic herdsmen of nigeria's fulani tribe who are behind many of the killings around him. So there you go. That gives us a little bit of the flavor of um, what's happening in uh, Nigeria with the terrorists. So let's let's talk a little bit about about that, the reality of what's going there, uh, Doug, and and maybe we can talk about some ideas that we've had about how we can reach out to some of those on the ground and maybe pray with them and find a way in which maybe some support here, whether spiritually or economically, to uh, help some of the individuals there that are going through this crazy, insane slaughter of Christians. Right, Mark, Marky, uh, you, you got it. Actually, praying with people has a multi—it's it, it's a multiplier. It, it has a multiplying effect because by praying with people in Nigeria, like I do, we pray with them over uh, cell phone communications using a messenger app, or we're using WhatsApp, but. You could use other messenger services uh, to get around the high cost of long-distance calling. By praying with them, we're actually gaining information about the terrorism. I, I began in 2019 with one person, my, my first 
contact was a Catholic priest in the state of Adamawa. And while I was talking to him, he, he was he had a parsonage and he had a he was supervising several churches in one of the, the zones that had been devastated by Boko Haram. And I realized he was all alone and he was surrounded by the graves of of uh, people who had been murdered by the terrorist. And so we I, I told him, we let's just pray together. And as we as I prayed for him, I just the tears came and I just started weeping, mm. realizing that this man he hasn't he knows no one who can help him he's all alone and uh, he he also uh, he prayed for me and he wept and from that that first call i i started to develop other contacts within a short period of time one of his colleagues called me uh, during a boko haram attack in the town of michika also in, in adamo not far from him and i took the notes on that call the 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 priest was standing on a hill he was watching the the town of Michiga being burned by the Boko Haram who had come in that day to rob the bank and loot some stores. And then I wrote it up and I, and I got that story published a day later in the Washington Examiner. And that demonstrated to me that having this kind of contact can actually bring the news of the genocide against Christians into the mainstream media. So I started to develop this and I, f- I finally announced uh, quickly after that that I was forming a group called Prayer News Network, which never became an organization, but I, uh, some people have helped me do it. The idea is that you befriend a person in in a conflict zone. could be Nigeria. could be some someplace else that has an ISIS insurgency. Mm-hmm. And you get their story and you express solidarity with them. Mm. And by doing that, by bonding with a person, even though you've never met them, you learn about the the terrorism and you get the information from them. Then I publish a story, but other people could do the same thing. They, uh, other Christians could pray with people in a conflict zone, take notes, and then they could contact me. I could do a story or they could contact some other journalist or they could do a story uh, themselves, you know, for any newspaper they're connected with. That's a great idea. I, I, I think that, um, uh... You know, you're accomplishing a couple things there. You're you're praying together with you know people that are under tremendous distress. You know, maybe they just saw their family yeah. murdered, or their friends, or relatives, or children, and so you you connect with them. You know, on emotional, spiritual level, and you can give them support. But also, we can take that information, like you mentioned, and put it out there so the rest of the world can hear. You know, the the, the stories and be able to uncover what the media is not presenting and so we're you're we're accomplishing two things uh, supporting those yeah going through it and also getting that message out through your reporting and education Uh, yes actually and marcus interestingly enough it is consequential when the 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 west notices the the grave atrocities in nigeria and reports it it appears that the Nigerian authorities get embarrassed by it, and they take action to remediate it. And I'll give you an example. In May of 2000, and, it was May of 2018. Donald Trump met President Buhari at a ceremony in the Rose Garden at the White House, and Donald Trump turned to Buhari and surprised him by saying, "There is so much, you know, persecution of Christians in Nigeria. Why are you allowing this?" The president was taken aback. He didn't expect it. Uh, I don't know what he said, 
when Buhari returned, something happened in Nigeria. The herdsman attacks just suddenly abated. For several months, there were no marauders going into the villages and, and killing anyone. And the Nigerians were talking about it. And in fact, they talked about it for years. Just the fact that there was a public embarrassment in Washington just one time yes. seemed to have an effect. Although the government claims that these attacks are uh, communal clashes, that they aren't centrally organized by anyone, that they are the result of bandit raids or local hooligans, it's the word they use. It does seem that after that meeting with President Trump, something changed. And then after a few months, the herdsman tax uh, came back in earnest. Mm. Yeah, that uh, certainly sounds like something Donald Trump would do. He's uh, pretty fearless. Even to, uh, the Obama administration couldn't really act when the uh, girls were taking uh, hostage, too. So it's it really shows you that leadership, American leadership, can make a big influence if you have the right leader in that position that can point it out and is uh, very clear about the problem. And that's a good example of what uh, Donald Trump did for Nigeria. So, yeah, the truth can get out the more we can see uh, maybe some action taken on the ground there. Why don't you give us some of your contact information, Doug, so that we can uh, let my viewers know uh, how to contact you. I have your sure. email address here is uh, Burton News and Views at Gmail. That's B-U-R-T-O-N News, N-E-W-S and A-N-D, Views, V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. That's his uh, email address. You can contact Doug directly if you'd be interested in uh, uh, finding a, an individual in Nigeria that you would like to pray with, connect with, and maybe share some of his stories with uh, with Doug so that he can report on it. Uh, his telephone number is, I'll give you his phone number. It's You can speak to him directly at 202-203-9883. That's his direct uh, cell phone number. I'll also post this information in my description box, part of my podcast on whatever viewing channel that you're listening to. And I'll also put a uh, link to the YouTube channel that has the entire Laura Logan documentary broken up into three-minute segments. So if you'd like to go there and see directly, you can link there also as well. So Doug, um, anything else that uh, you'd like to share that we didn't touch on? Anything that's on your mind or your heart? Yeah, I, I urge that people pray about this, that they look inside themselves and uh, reflect on it and ask themselves, is there something I can do? In, in my case, I saw there was a lot I could do. Uh, I could use my skills, use my knowledge. I think God prepared me to be a, you know, a change agent in a small way, just by connecting people in one country to people in another country. It, it's, I'd worked with the State Department in Iraq for two years. And what I was trying to do in Iraq is something that we are doing in Nigeria. It's called citizen-to-citizen -citizen diplomacy, or simply citizen diplomacy. If you befriend a person in another country, and that person's, person is in a conflict zone, it mm. is a form of, of diplomacy. Though you're a private citizen, you are participating in exchange of ideas and information from the country that proudly calls itself the leader of the free world. And you're helping someone in another country. You are, are in fact, an ambassador of American culture to the other person. And it can be... Of, of great consequence, because 
the, the information you give can, in, can enable a person in Nigeria to apply for a Fulbright scholarship, for example, and mm. come to the United States for an all-expense-paid uh, you know, uh, master's degree program. You might encourage the person in a conflict zone to redouble his or her uh, resources and, and persevere you know, under a duress, you might help them defend themselves. Mm. You might help them find ways to find allies who can help them get law enforcement in their areas. Sure. Uh, all of these things have impact. So I think that the when citizens discover how easy it is to be a change agent just by calling up somebody or letting them call you and praying with them, I think they'll get the thrill that I experienced, and it's the thrill of feeling that you're helping a, another person get through a period of a threat, you know, a, a life, uh, a life-threatening experience. A, actually, it's for for many of them, it's a traumatic experience being in the area of a of a civil war, oh, an yeah. area of a conflict, and yet. Uh, just a little bit of time and effort or donations can help them tremendously. I, I When I can, I'm not wealthy, but I, I send uh, cash donations to my writers. Mm-hmm. I supervise reporters, mm-hmm. and uh, they I, I make sure that – and by working for a news agency as freelancers, they get, get paid freelance fees. But I also give cash donations to people uh, when I can. It makes a huge difference because a hundred dollars in Nigeria goes a long way. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. I, that's a that's a wonderful idea, and I and I think I, I I agree with you. I think if people get a taste of you know, you know, speaking somebody directly in another country, especially in America here where we you know we have so much comfort and we we just don't experience those things. I think it can really enrich us, even young people. I think if they can be a part of that, that can really maybe even change their life. So I think that's a that's a wonderful idea. There's a there's a lot of Nigerian churches in in the US too, right? Doug, isn't that oh. a, a pretty big you, uh, segment of uh, Christianity here? Uh it's huge. You'd be surprised. There's about between 500,000 and some people believe 2 million Nigerians in the United States and they love uh, going to church. They love worship. Uh even during COVID, the Nigerian churches are growing. Just this last Saturday, this last Sunday, I attended a mega church that the Nigerians have planted in the suburb of Washington, D.C. They just on Sunday, they opened up a 2000 seat auditorium for a mega church called Winner's Chapel that was begun in Nigeria in 1976, I believe. Uh, Winner's Chapel went through COVID. They expanded from a 500 seat warehouse they were using to the, a converted grocery store that is now a 2,000-seat auditorium. They are of finding lots of opportunity to expand ministries. They represent uh, a culture of marriage. Nigerians have a very high rate of marriage, far, far above the, the national median in the United States. Conservative princi- they, principles, too, right? They're very conservative. Yeah, they're, they're very Well, they... They certainly believe in marital fidelity. They believe in uh, that God is guiding them toward prosperity. They, the prosperity gospel is a very popular form of uh, worship in uh, many Nigerian churches. Yeah, so they, they're expanding. And uh, I don't know what the political orientation of the 
Ni most Nigerians is. Uh, I don't know, but I, in the United States, uh, because the community as a whole is not heavily engaged in politics. But I can tell you one thing that's interesting uh, to me, and that is that the the Christians I've talked to in several states and Nigerians in Nigeria, they are big Trump supporters. They love Donald Trump. And during the election, the campaign last year, they actually held rallies for Trump, <laughs> believe it or not. Well, I, yeah, I can I can believe that. I think um, you find uh, a lot of minorities or were, were Trump supporters, you know, in this last election. So it's I think Trump crossed a lot of different uh, minority boundaries and you know, that Republicans haven't been able to reach before in the past. And uh, that's that's a good thing to hear. Do, do you think the Nigerians are here in America, are they aware of, of what's going on in, in uh, northern Nigeria with uh, what we're talking about today? Do you think they're aware of this? They absolutely are. All Nigerians are aware of it. And it's, it's uh, they're also aware, they're becoming aware of the fact that the challenges Americans are running into are the same ones that they they had when they were in Nigeria. One reason I think the Nigerians uh, can relate to Donald Trump's message is that they have the same challenges. Uh, we have a fake news media. They do, too. They ha We have a news media that's closely allied with the Democrat Party and with uh, government, government at all level. And that's exactly the same mm -hmm. case in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. They have a you know, I, they they have a two standard justice system. So do we. I mean, mm -hmm. they have uh, they have to. They're facing political correctness. So they're not uh, allowed to speak frankly and uh, and forthrightly about who are the actors causing this violence. They have to use euphemisms like bandit. Everybody knows that the these bandits and hooligans are actually Fulani militia who are politically connected to the government in Nigeria. So in this country, we're supposed to. We're supposed to believe from our attorney general that uh, people who go to school board meetings and protest uh, sexual attacks on their kids in the bathroom, we're supposed to think that that person speaking loudly is a domestic terrorist. You know? So there are right. similar absurd parallels between these two countries. Yeah, I see. So and some, and some people that speak out can find themselves uh, in jail, right? They can be jailed and locked up. And Yeah, they, yeah, they have laws. In Nigeria, against incitement. So, if you tell the truth about who's who's doing the killings in the villages and towns, uh, you could be hauled into jail. If you're a journalist, you could be you write a story uh, that offends the uh, tribal uh, community. You could be brought into court on charges of incitement, since you supposedly you're inciting, uh, you know, tribal conflict mm. by telling the truth. Right, and so uh, you're. Citizen journalists, a lot of them are putting themselves at uh, great risk and willing to uh, die to get the truth out from what I saw on the documentary. They absolutely are. Right? Absolutely. They, they absolutely are. Actually, I can give you an illustration of that. They, they did a press conference to, to, to show the Laura Logan documentary just on October 15th, uh, just two weeks ago. And uh, uh, on October 11th, before their event, there were four of the community the christian community leaders were called into a special session with the military police uh, and they were told in a very friendly way that that uh, they were not supposed to present anything controversial that would incite people to do more violence so they were kind of warned in a in a, in a good nature way that 
uh, in Nigeria, they they have a way of solving problems. It's not like that in the United States. Mm. You know, pu- publicly revealing, publicly talking about the conflict in a way that would incite uh, sectarian uh, animosity is the wrong way to go. So, in other words, they don't they don't want truth. They don't want a truthful presentation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in in fact, uh, high, you know, very well known figures like uh, Obadiah Malafia, a former governor of the National Bank, he was called into into one of these uh, sessions with the military police. They actually held him for several days. They, they, they jailed him, as they did Masara Kim, the mm-hmm. gentleman that you you featured in your uh, excerpt. Mm-hmm. Masara Kim was called in by the same police just two weeks after Mr. Obadiah, and uh, he was held for a day mm. because the police believed that he is, his, his reporting was unbalanced. Mm. Starting to sound like a big tech here in the U.S., like Twitter yeah. and uh, Google yeah. and all these guys. So exactly. we, we, uh, we're up against it here, too, as well. We think our freedoms are um, uh, automatic, but uh, we, we have to always fight for our freedoms. Well, listen, uh, Doug, I thank you very much for uh, bringing this uh, message to my audience today. And, uh, again, if you'd like to reach out to uh, Doug, uh, I'll put all of his contacts in my podcast description. That's burtonnewsandviews at gmail.com. His telephone number is 202 203-9883, and also the YouTube channel there that has uh, segments of uh, Laura Logan's documentary, uh, No Agenda. Uh, Doug Burton's was also interviewed in that documentary. So again, yeah, Doug, thanks very much for coming today, and I yeah. appreciate you sharing uh, this very important message to the American people. Thank you, Marquis. Stay the course, sir. God bless you, sir. Have a wonderful right. day. And we'll see everybody next episode. Uh, This is Marquis Vandermark from the Affirm America podcast. God bless you and have a great day. This is the Affirm America podcast with your host, Marquis Vandermark. And let's never forget, America is great and we affirm it.